everybody. Great to see you this morning. If you don't know me, my name's Tony. I'm one of the pastors here. And after a six-week stint of being uh, out of the saddle, I am uh, yeah get to bring God's Word to you again this morning. Hopefully I can remember what to do. Uh, that song uh, was really helpful in preparing my heart, at least, to preach Christ um, because it was so focused on Him. I had the dilemma of having a sore throat and thinking should I really bust it out and sing now and then have no voice left to preach or should I do something in between anyway we here we are we're getting underway Um, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4 we're continuing our series this morning that we've been working our way through in Paul's letter to the Ephesian church called the death of division Uh, if you haven't worked out what the title is about yet it's the death of of division between us and God that exists because of our sin through the Lord Jesus and his powerful death and resurrection on our behalf. And as a flow-on effect from that, it's the death of division between us as people as Jesus unites us together in him. So we're continuing this morning and we're kind of in a mini-series within the series over last week, this week and next week in chapter 4 verses one Uh, to 16 looking really focusing in on the church and what uh, God says about who we are and how we function together and what God calls us to and so on so Ephesians chapter 4 we're going to read verses uh, I think 1 to 12 Um, I'm reading from the ESV and we're going to pray and then we'll dive in Ephesians chapter 1 sorry 4 verse 1 Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, One baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave, gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And so, Lord, now as we've read your word, help us now by your spirit to grasp it and to be grasped by it, that we may glorify you in not only our hearing of it, but in our responding to it. We ask this for your glory and for our good and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, some of you may know that we, uh, the Spencers, that is, Michelle and I, recently moved house. And we moved from the little house at the back here, the manse, after almost 12 months to the day, uh, to Champion Lakes uh, over here in Kelmscott. And where we live, 
uh, we can see the regatta center that's there. Uh, and so yesterday, there was the first major event since we moved in, which was only on Tuesday. Um, and it was the Independent Girls Schools Head of the River Regatta. And if you're wondering, uh, Perth Ladies College, PLC, won it again for the eighth year in a row. Um, whatever. Um, interestingly, there's all types of craft that happens. It starts early and goes for several hours. They start with the single skulls and then they get into the quads. And then lastly, and I think most importantly, the eighths come out. They're the big ones. Eight rowers. Uh, and the coxswain at the front. Now, obviously, uh, the coxswain is a very important person in this event or these events. Important because they're the only one, I think, this is one of the reasons they're important, uh, they're the only one facing in the right direction. Um, so that's obviously pretty important. Um, but also because their role is to set the trajectory, yes, the direction, but also the rhythm of the crew. And so they are, they are key to any uh, chance of success. Um, in Ephesians 4, I want to suggest to you that Paul is addressing the trajectory, the direction, and the rhythm of our lives as followers of Jesus. Drawing our attention to this reality, that there's one very, very important person who sees what we cannot see. And sets the direction that we would get wrong. Of course, I'm talking about the Lord Jesus. He's the head of the church, his body. And uh, we're unpacking some of that in Ephesians 4. Paul's talking about the direction clearly because he uses this word that he often uses. That is the word walk. He says in chapter 4 verse 1, Therefore, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, that is the church, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have received. Now, Paul begins to make this point that will continue for the rest of Ephesians, that the stunning truths or doctrines that he has laid out in chapters 1 to 3 are to be life-changing in every way for followers of Jesus, that they are to set the trajectory and the rhythm of our lives, that there is, there is the application of those truths that is meant to get down into the nitty-gritty of our lives, into the very details of our lives together. That is how the gospel shapes us as a church, shapes our lives, shapes uh, the direction we're going feeds into the health and our fruitfulness together. Now, last week, Tim introduced us uh, to this little diagram uh, speaking about the ecosystem of a healthy church. And I think he helpfully argued that uh, it's not some corporate framework that you, know, you take and kind of impose on the church. These truths that are contained in this diagram are emerging from God's Word and are all components of a healthy church. You see there, it's the first thing is underneath all of it is this deep in the word idea. That is the gospel is shaping and feeling and giving life to the health and vitality of a church community. And as a result, the people who are part of that church love God. 
as the gospel shapes and grips our hearts, we have these, these growing affections for God. We love Him because He first loved us. Uh, we, we, we're constantly thinking about being on mission. We want to we see more people discover the wonder of who God is and what He's done for us. And so a healthy church shaped by the word of the gospel is thinking about reaching the lost. Not just occasionally, but it's, it's regularly there. A healthy church shaped by the gospel is a church that serves in ministry and that does life with other Christians, growing together, maturing together, having depth of relationship with one another. Now, last week we saw that the church is one in the Lord, that we share a unity in the Spirit. That's being in community, right? God has brought us together in the Lord Jesus and given us this unity, filling us with His Spirit as His people. This is not something that we created, but something that God has brought about. And yet, Paul says in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, that we are called to eagerly maintain that unity. To live our lives in light of it. To function together as a result of it. That was last week. Uh, this week we're going to look a little bit more into uh, chapter 4 and 7 to 12. But before we do, I want us to see what's at the centre of it all. What's at the centre of this kind of picture, if you like, that Paul paints for us of the church in all its functioning and healthiness and beauty? Well, it's there in chapter 4 and verse 7 and 8, particularly verse 8. Paul writes, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Verse 9, In saying he ascended, that is, into heaven, what does it mean? But that he descended from heaven into the lower parts of the earth. Now, you may not know this, but Paul's quoting Psalm 68 here and verse 18 in particular and he's applying it seamlessly to Jesus, which is actually breathtaking if we just stop for a minute and think about it. What does Psalm 68 say? It says, speaking of Yahweh, of the great I Am, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, God, may dwell there. This psalm exalts God's majestic power and victory over his enemies, especially in light of his triumph, Delivering Israel, his Old Testament people, from captivity in slavery through the Exodus. It speaks of Yahweh, the great I Am, and the triumph, his triumph, on behalf of his covenant people. And so isn't it breathtaking, friends, that Paul takes that psalm and applies it to Jesus and the victory he has won for his people, for his church. 
It's breathtaking if we stop and think about it in two significant ways. Firstly, it says this, Jesus is God. He's the great I am who fights for us and rescues us as his people. He's the great warrior Lord who steps into his world, he descended, to powerfully deliver us. How awesome is that? And secondly, the explosive power of his death and resurrection actually changes everything for us. And so it's to forever be the orientating reality and centre of our lives together. What Paul is saying to us here in verse 7 to 10 is this. Jesus has descended from heaven to earth to rescue people who are dead in sin. Ephesians 2 verse 1. And not just to rescue us, but to raise us to new life. Both now until he returns and then forever after he returns. This, of course, meant the humbling of himself. It meant Jesus living a perfect life that we could never live. It meant dying the death that we deserved as a sacrifice for sin so that the forgiveness of our sins could be a reality on offer from God to us. It meant defeating sin and death and hell on our behalf, triumphing over it all through his resurrection. And then, as we have here, it meant ascending on high after he'd been raised to his rightful place at God's right hand. Friends, Notice that Paul puts this smack in the centre of a healthy church. What's at the centre of a healthy church? The Lord Jesus Christ and his powerful, explosive death and resurrection on behalf of his people. That's what's at the centre of it. In fact, Paul can't think about the church in any other way than this. And I want to suggest to you, neither should we. Neither should we. But we do, right? We think about the church in all sorts of ways that are sadly not worthy of it. We think about the church in ways that are actually offensive to the one who is at the heart of it. Offensive to the one who loves it and gave himself for it. And so I want to suggest to you that when we see it clearly like this, we probably need to repent. Of those thoughts 
and turn away from them and let the risen Lord Jesus reorientate our minds and hearts to what it ought to be. The upside of doing that is that you might start to rejoice again in who you are as the body of Christ, as the people of God, as the bride of Christ. Church is no, no longer something you just got to kind of you know, go to and put up with. It's a glorious reality that you get to participate in because of Jesus' powerful death and resurrection on your behalf and on others' behalf. It's a miraculous, glorious thing that he's brought into being. Yes, it's flawed. Yes, it's imperfect. Yes, we're a work in progress. All of that is true. But nonetheless, it's something he has created by his grace. And at that point, we might perhaps recommit to our engagement with and our participation in and our ministry among his church. And so having said that, answered the question, what's at the center of a healthy church? I reckon the passage becomes quite clear. There's four things that we see really clearly when we see Jesus at the center of this. That's here in this passage. Firstly, he unites, his, he unites us in his church. We're, oop, we've lost the slide. There we go. He unites us in his church, verses 1 to 6. This is what the risen Jesus has done. We saw that last week. Secondly, he gifts us as his church, verse 7 to 10, which we'll look at in a minute. He equips us as his church, verse 11 to 12. And then he matures us through his church, verses 13 to 16. That'll be next week. This week, we're just going to look at the middle two. He gives us as his church and he equips us for his church. So firstly, he gives us as his church. Have a look again at verse 7 to 10 and particularly verse 8, which you're you know, often tempted just to brush over, but it's the key. Therefore, he said, or verse 7, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. And he gave gifts to men, or the actually more accurate translation would be to people. NIV says to his people. Notice that when Jesus ascended, he didn't do that by himself. The quote from the psalm makes it clear that he led a host of captives. That is, he took with him those who were captive, but now have been released. Those who have been set free by him, by his powerful death and resurrection. That would be you if you put your trust in him. That would be you if you've turned to him. He's released you from captivity and he's taken you with him. It would be all his people from every age and every nation who have believed in him. It's a rather large group. And not only that, but notice he gave gifts. He gave gifts to his people. This is, and here Paul's kind of changed it up again a bit from Psalm 68. The psalm has Yahweh receiving gifts from people. 
Here, the risen and reigning Jesus is giving gifts. Sharing the spoil, if you like. What spoil? The spoil of his victory. Of creating a whole new people, of ushering in a whole new reality, an eternal, eternal people who belong to him. So the risen Jesus gives gifts to us so that we can be the new people of God together. So that we can contribute to the life and health of his body, which is the church. So that the manifold wisdom of God can be on display in the world, as Ephesians 3 pictured. Jesus gives gifts. The word is grace. So that we might be able to serve. Again, this is what the explosive power of the death and resurrection of Jesus has brought about. These are the fruits of his victory that he lavishes on us. He gifts us as his church for his purposes. Now, uh, next Friday night, I've got tickets to a particular game uh, in Perth, and I'll be heading off Optus Stadium. I don't know how good the experience is going to be. I think it's going to be probably terrible. But never mind. Just going to Optus Stadium, I'll, I'll just take that. That'll be, that'll be fun just by itself. You know, 22 players on the pitch, maybe 40,000 spectators, lots of noise, maybe. That's how it should be, right? When you go to a game. 22 players, 40,000 spect spectators. Not so with the church that Jesus has created and gifted. Everyone who knows and loves Jesus is equipped to be on the ground and not in the stands. The only spectators that are spoken of in the Bible are those spoken of in Hebrews who have gone before us, who are in the stands, as it were, cheering us on. And those who are not yet Christians, exploring the faith and observing the church. The rest are to be on the ground. Why? Not because you should, but because Jesus has gifted his church. So I want to ask you this morning, are you a spectator or a player? Are you in the stands or on the ground? Jesus has ministry for you to do in his church for his glory. And it's part of the worthy walk. He actually calls us to this. It's not like an optional extra. You know, oh, well, you know, maybe I will, maybe I won't. No, no, no. It's part of the calling of God in the gospel to himself and to his purposes, which he has saved us for and gifted us for. 
So it's not a take it and leave it. It's what Jesus desires for us to build up his church. Maybe you're here this morning and you think, I don't, I don't really have a part to play. You know, like that's only for some people. That's only for the special people. I'm, pr- I'm just pretty basic. I'm pretty ordinary. You know, what, what would Jesus want me to do, really? Maybe, maybe that's how you find yourself thinking at times. Well, that's not what we have here in God's Word, is it? Grace, we're told, was given to each one. Not to some, some kind of special elite group. No, no, grace was given to every believer for the building up of the church. So let me tell you, from the Word of God, you have a part to play. And Jesus wants you to play it. Jesus intends for all of us to be in ministry. You know, it's a bit of a silly question, right? Are you going to go into ministry? The question sometimes gets asked. And it's, you know, around full-time ministry. It's not a bad question, I suppose. But, no, no. (laughs) Maybe you're going to go into full-time ministry is a better way of asking it. Because we're in ministry regardless, apparently according to Paul. So it's not a question. It's just what type of ministry you're going to do. Let me ask you, are you serving in a ministry just now at the moment? Tim mentioned this morning that there's a holiday kids program coming up for three weeks and we really need some people to serve, to give our regular, far, far less than ordinary, far more than ordinary kids Workers, a break while they get ready for term three. Can you believe we're there already? You know, can you do one Sunday, maybe two? If you're not serving already, even if you are, you might have margin where you could take that on as well. Are you serving? And and if not, why not? Jesus has given us all we need also this is really encouraging right when we think about advancing the gospel in our region kind of like oh how do we do that this passage would say that jesus has given us all we need to advance the gospel we have it we have his provision his resourcing among us to do it if we just need to deploy all that he's given and pursue it We need to take him at his word. We need to step out in faith, trusting him to use us for his glory. Now, again, we've talked about this a a bit and we're going to hear it a bit more as we head uh, towards whatever we're going to do in the future moving forward. But um, clearly this passage does not entertain the idea that we would be a cruise ship. This passage affirms the fact that the church is actually like a rescue ship. All hands on deck, right? No passengers. There's plenty of passengers on the other one. Lots of passengers. Being served by everyone else. But not on this one. 
And that's the picture we want to keep reminding ourselves of. And that's the picture that we have here. Because the risen Jesus has a work for us to do and he's given us gifts to do it. So firstly, he gifts us as his church. Secondly, he equips us as his church. And we see that in verse 11 and 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitfulness of schemes. Notice the picture that Paul paints here is not a free-for-all in ministry. So yes, he's gifted everyone for ministry, everyone serving in ministry, but not in kind of whatever way they want or however they want or kind of all over the shop. There's, there's, there's to be some kind of direction and some shape around it and so on. And so the picture here is the deployment of gifts that we all have in a particular way with spiritual direction and oversight and with equipping and training within it. So verse 11, within the body which is gifted by the risen Jesus for ministry, there are those who also are gifts or have gifts to play a key role in the ministry of the church. And Paul identifies them as apostles, prophets, evangelists and pastor teachers. Now, some of those uh, are still around and some aren't. The apostles here is best understood as the 12, uh, who are often called the capital A apostles. They, were, they laid down the foundation of ch the church. They played a key role in doing that. Then you have the prophets, which is a reference to new covenant prophets, uh, different to the Old Testament prophets who had the weighty kind of thus says the Lord when they spoke. Not like them, but rather kind of prophets who would exhort and proclaim the new covenant realities to the church. Then there are evangelists who, who Christ has given. And their role is pretty clear, right? As the name suggests, they proclaim the evangel. They are particularly gifted to do that. And, uh, and as, a, as a result, are probably uh, often at the forefront of planting and establishing new churches as they go. And then there's the last couple, which really are probably best understood as two sides of one role, pastors, uh, or better, shepherds, who give care and leadership to God's flock, and, last, and teachers who have a specific ability to bring God's word to God's flock. Uh, so these particular gifts of the risen Jesus, he gives to his church so that the church might be equipped, verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. These gifts are so the people of God might be equipped to do their ministry. What is that ministry? That the body of Christ may be built up both numerically in size and in and depth of maturity. This is what Jesus' risen and reigning intends for us as his church here at GBC and every church. The whole church deployed in ministry and mission 
being gifted to do so, and the whole church equipped for ministry and mission, gifted by some, gifted by Jesus to do so. So not only does the Lord gift us as his church, he also provides particular gifts in order to equip us as his church. Now, this uh, kind of blows some, I don't know, well-established kind of thinking out of the water, doesn't it? So this would tell you that the paid staff or the elders are not envisaged by Jesus as doing all the ministry or the work of ministry. Can you see that? The pastors, elders are envisaged by Jesus as equipping and deploying God's people for ministry. It's quite a difference, isn't it? One has the pastors doing uh, the ministry and the church kind of, I don't know, watching or spectating. The other has the people of God serving in all sorts of different ways and the shepherds slash teachers equipping and training them to do that even more fruitfully and effectively. Now, we often get that muddled up. I can still remember when I was at Bible college, our principal said, as you engage with churches, you need to ask these questions. And they were these. What does the church think the pastor should do? And what does the church think the church should do? There's two of them. There's two more. What does the pastor think the pastor should do? (laughs) And what does the pastor think the church should do? Pretty important that you get some kind of alignment on those four questions. And the reason being, because it's a pretty confused area. But it's clear in Ephesians 4, right? It's pretty clear. But we get it muddled up, right? People say to paid pastors or whatever, it's, well, it's your job. Really? Maybe. To do what? Well, it's our job to equip and train and so that the people of God can do the ministry. It's actually our job together. And, you know, confession time, we get in a mindset sometime as paid pastors that we think we can do it all so we keep taking on more and keep taking on more and then you know there's this problem that happens and it's pretty widespread called burnout because something's probably out of balance here and out of whack here and then of course there is this sometimes resistance to the shepherds in the church to equip people for the ministry that they want to do well who are you to tell me what to do and how i should do it and and uh, you know the direction that we should go i just want to do my i'm just going to use my gifts well yes (laughs) but in a particular direction and with a particular mission and focus and purpose that we're all wanting to be united around Uh, One of the interesting things I think this passage also reveals is this. Notice it's the word of God that equips the people of God 
for the purpose of God. All of those five gifts there that you saw, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, they're all word ministry gifts. They're all people who bring the word of God in some capacity. That tells us that if we want to be equipped and prepared to use whatever God has given us to serve him, we want to be shaped by the word. We're getting back to that diagram again, aren't we? Deep in the word. Shaping then how it's expressed uh, together. Lastly, as we finish, and I think we can see this really clearly. God desires his church to be faithful and fruitful for his glory. And God calls us as his church to be faithful and fruitful for his glory. And he's given us everything we need to do it. So let me ask you as we finish, what is setting the direction of your life? Who's the coxswain, if you like, who's setting the trajectory and the rhythms? Is his name Jesus, the risen, reigning Lord? who ascended and is seated at the right hand and has led captives with him and has given gifts. What is shaping your thoughts about his church? Maybe it's past experiences that haven't been great. Maybe it's, I don't know, some kind of institutional thing. Maybe it's your preferences, what you think should happen or should not happen, which turns out are actually just preferences or is it the risen reigning Lord Jesus let me encourage you to, to like Paul not think about the church apart from him Can we pray together Father we, um, we come before you this morning and we want to thank you on the one hand for the wonder of your purposes and of your church. That it would be your idea that you would redeem people from darkness, from slavery to sin. You would raise people up, that you would raise us up, that you would give us new life in Christ. And that you would unite us together around him and fill us with your spirit. That we might be the people of God together. Father, help us to see the beauty of what you're doing. The wonder of your bride and your body and your people. Help us to be passionate about seeing it grow and being added to. Help us to repent where we need to repent. Father, we do confess that our thoughts are often, yeah, unworthy of, of what you're doing. Lord Jesus, you are reigning over us.
you are pouring out your grace upon us even now through your word. Please uh, help us to afresh submit ourselves to you with, with joy. Help us to be shaped by you. And Lord, may you set the direction that we are heading in. May that not be us or other things, but may it be you. We ask this in your awesome name. Amen.